His presence is in this place. I know the morning meetings, I think, are supposed to be a little bit more energetic because we're all supposed to be waking up or something. I don't know, but, but I just, uh, I'm definitely not Pastor Keith Rogan. I, I don't, I'm a, I'm a white kid, so I just don't, I don't dance like that. That's just, that's not in my DNA. Uh, I wish it was, but it's just not, so I don't, I don't, I don't have any hips. I just kind of move like Gumby, so... Um, that's just the way it is. That's okay. I'm not, jealous. I'm not jealous and I'm not mad at God, okay? I just, he gave Brother Keith all the stuff and I'm, I didn't get it, but that's okay. That's okay. I'm over it. Um, bow down before him. Uh, so anyway, but this morning I just, uh, I have something that I want to share with you. Um, message that God gave to me actually a, 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 about a week and a half ago or so and um, I had another message in, in mind, and it was something that I was going to preach, that I was, uh, anybody that ministers in this place, you know what I mean, but it was a safer message. Um, it was about, you know, how great you are, and how God wants to make you great, and how he wants to give you stuff, and how he's so great and wonderful, and, and uh, God didn't let me minister that message, and I was just really upset about that, so... Uh, he said, I want you to minister something else. And I said, okay, well, can I please minister the safe one? Um, it'd be better, uh, I think. And he said, yeah, you think. And then the conversation was over. So uh, <laughs> he didn't say anything after that because I didn't have anything else to say. So I was like, okay, Lord, I bow down before you. Okay, here we go. Um, but this morning, I just want to um, I want to encourage somebody here. And I and I want to encourage you as an individual, but I also want to encourage us all collectively as the church because we've been called to be a corporate body, but the church is not the building that you attend on Sunday mornings. The church is you. You're the church. And when God talks about the church, when Jesus talks about the church, he isn't talking about an organization run by people. He's talking about, he's talking about individuals that now he lives in you. And so when you come to church, you come together corporately. So that's why Paul said... Don't forsake the assembling of each other together because when a whole bunch of little churches get together, you can have real big church, right? And so that's what we always strive to do, at least in my, in my town, is, is uh, we don't want to just get together and, and just have a club. We want to get together and do Jesus. That's what we want to do. So uh, we want to be a blessing to our community because that's where God has placed us. And I know that we've got a whole bunch of different cities represented here, and uh, we're from Central Indiana, right around Indianapolis area, a um, little north of that. Uh, my city has 2,500 people in it. Some churches have more than that in them. Um, we don't have a very big city. And I was actually raised in the city that I now pastor in, graduated from that high school. And you would not believe how many times I quoted the scripture to Jesus, like, okay, wait a minute, you couldn't even minister in your own hometown. Don't you dare call me to this place, okay? So, Jesus, if you can't minister in Nazareth, I ain't ministering in Greentown, all right? I'm not doing it. I'm just not. Send me somewhere else, Lord. I'll hook up with, like, can I hook up with Jordan? I'll go to New Albany and do something, you know? I, I don't want to be in Greentown. Um, but uh, I guess God has other plans sometimes, you know? Something that is outside of our comfort zone or something that we want to do. Sometimes he asks us to do things that are beyond us. Because if he only asks you to do things that you can do, then it doesn't really require any faith to do it. So he wants you to do faith. So anytime that you ever feel like you're doing something that's beyond you, you're doing faith. 
Um, because faith is asking you to do something that you can't achieve on your own, that you can't do by yourself. If it's within your scope and your ability to be able to do, then you better start asking yourself, am I in the boat with the other 11 disciples or am I on the water with Peter? And uh, I want to be out on the water with Peter because that's way cooler than the party that you guys had last night. I mean, we have to, like, manufacture lights. They had, like, actual real lights going, man, like thunder, lightning, waves. I mean, mist. I mean, it was all over the place. It could have been awesome. Here's Peter walking out on the water with Jesus, and the other 11 goofballs are in the boat. I don't even know what they're saying. Are they on the boat going like, come on, Peter, man, you got this? Or were they on the boat going like, probably like Thomas, like, that's a stupid, you're stupid. What are you doing right now? That's a dumb idea. People don't do that. People don't walk on water. That's just a dumb idea. Stay in the boat, dude. Listen to me, though, church. The boat was sinking. The boat was sinking. The reason that they were calling out in such a way to Jesus is because their boat was in peril. So why in the world are we hanging on to sinking things? We're hanging on to sinking things because they feel safe or they give us a semblance of safety, but they're not safe. They're not safe. The safest place that day was with Peter on the water with Jesus. That was the safest place. That was the faith place. The other 11 guys were in a perceived place of safety. They were in that place because that's, boats float, people don't. It doesn't really rhyme, but it sounds good. Boats float, people don't. Like, we just don't walk on water. That's not what we do. We, some of us are better swimmers than others. I, I just kind of paddle, you know, and I just stay above, you know. That's how I do the water thing. Um, Peter's a fisherman, so I'm assuming he could probably swim pretty good, but Still, you don't walk on top of water. You usually are in the water, resisting the water, but, but Peter was asked to walk on top of it, and that really was the safest place to be because that was the faith place to be, not the safe place to be in terms of what we understand as safety. So this morning, I just want to share some things with you that I think are going to push you out of the boat a little bit. Um, and I hope that you're okay with that, and even if you're not okay with it, I'm going to preach it anyway, so... And you're kind of captive until lunchtime, so. so we might as well just do this and enjoy each other's company, right? Cool, all right, well, good, here we go. We're going to do it, here we go. Isaiah chapter 60, I want to read this verse to you. Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 3. Um, if you don't have a version that I have, um, I think sometimes it's a little bit easier to follow along. It's, it's there on the screen behind me and in front of you. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you. <laughs> now see, you guys are just listening to me talk. You're not participating. Come on. The Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear on you. Nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. The title of this morning's message is The Brightness of Your Rising. The Brightness of Your Rising. What does that even mean? When uh, this scripture was shared, it was being ministered to the uh, nation of Israel. But I still feel like it's extremely practical and purposeful for us too. So it's not just for them, but it's something for us to look at as well. And we're going to look at that verse together here this morning and we're going to... We're going to let that help us, not just listen to it, 
not just put it in our notebooks and then hope that we remember it later, but I hope something that we say this morning, something the Holy Spirit ministers to you will stick with you as we look at these verses together. I want to read to you, I'm kind of a statistics guy. Um, I'm not really a numbers guy. My brother is the numbers guy. He's running for treasurer in our county, and um, he's going he's gonna to kick out of the dude's butt, I'm just saying. Um, but he's just, I, I love this kid. I actually just walked in a parade with him because he's running for that. He's the numbers guy. Um, he's the one that knows how to analytically break everything down. He's the one that puts together all our spreadsheets. He's a phenomenal member of staff, so I just absolutely love this kid. So anytime that I think of, okay, this is the vision, Weston gives me the numbers because you need people like that on your team. If you just have a team full of visionary people, then you don't have any practical people around you, then uh, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to start building stuff, get in debt, and go bankrupt and go, well, God, I thought that was your plan. Well, he tried to send you some people that were going to help you with your plan, but because you're crazy, <laughs> you did it too fast, and you didn't have the money to do it, and you didn't have the staff to do it, and you built too quick, and you, you, you fell apart. So um, even though it was a great vision, he gave the vision to your man of God. He still puts other people around those men of God, like you, and like other members of their staff that help them move the vision of God forward, because I don't think that the vision is just for one individual. The vision is for the corporate body, so it's for all of us to all play a part. So, so this morning, I want to I share some statistics with you, some things that I hope will enlighten us just a little bit, because it's easy to get inside of our church camp bubble, right, and think that the whole world thinks like this. They don't, Amen. all right? So if you're on Twitter or Instagram... Or you Snapchat, you know that the world doesn't think like this all the time. Right? right. right? They don't think like this all the time. So we're going to look at some stats that I think are going to help you understand where our world is in 2016. The Pew Research, uh, whatever company, I don't know, they did, a, they did a research just a couple of years ago. Uh, big nationwide survey. And they came up with some numbers that I thought were pretty staggering. Roughly 70%, this is just America, okay, not across the world, just in the United States, but roughly 70% of Americans identify with some form or type of Christianity. So whether it be a mainline denomination, independent, or whatever, they, they associate with some form of Christianity. 70% sounds pretty awesome. That's actually an 8% decline in the last seven years. So we were much higher than that in the baby boomer generation. They went to church, but I'm going to hopefully prove to you this morning that a lot of people are going to church out of obligation, not out of desire. So just because your parents went to church and drug you to church doesn't mean that you actually enjoyed going to church. It just means that you went to church. So you can tell everybody that you went to church, but you didn't even enjoy it when you went. So, all right, here we go. Okay, okay, all right, all right. My front row, I got my front row. Thanks, guys, for moving up here. That's my people. That's my people. 22.8% of people identify as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. That's a 6% jump in the last seven years. So the church has taken an 8% decline as far as people that identify with Christianity. And agnostic, atheist, nothing in particular has taken a 6% jump in the last seven years. Now that's just identifying as Christian. And just because people identify as Christian doesn't mean they go to church. Okay, so this is the church stuff, church attendance. 37% of people attend weekly service, 
33% of people attend monthly, and 29% seldomly or never. And 1%, if for any of you math people, that only equaled 99%, 1% didn't answer the question. I don't know. There's always going to be that person, right? I don't want to, I, I, I'm not comfortable with the question. Pass. You know, I, anyway, there's always that 1%. I don't know how that happens, but it just does. So that means that 63% of people in the United States of America don't attend church on a regular basis. 63%. I'm not good at math. Again, Weston is, but that's over half. I can at least do that much math. It's over half, 50%. It's over 50%. That's a lot of people. That means a lot of people in your community. I'm going to challenge, hopefully, maybe some pastors in the house, but also you, because if you don't know this number, then you're not praying right. So here we go. Denominational surveys in my area, so not for yours, but for me, for Greentown, Indiana. 2,500 people, 40% of people in my community do not attend church anywhere. 40%. And we live in a Bible Belt area where we just assume that everybody goes to church. 40% of my area doesn't go to church anywhere at all. They don't attend church. That means that 1,000 people in my community don't attend church anywhere. 2,500 people, 1,000 people, and I do not have a 1,000-seat sanctuary. I am aggressive in my church about reaching unchurched people. Aggressive about it. And if all you're aggressive about is reaching other churched people, then you're not doing the right thing. If all we're doing is having a club every Sunday that helps tote our ideas and blesses our people and you haven't seen anybody come to your altar or get saved, and you can't remember the last time your baptistry was full, and you can't remember the last time that your unsaved homosexual friend actually thought about coming to your church, maybe it's time to rethink how we do church. I'm going to tell you this. Some people agree with this, and some people don't. I hope you do. I think, I, I think you probably do, because we're all in the same type camp, but <laughs> I'm just going to get it, okay? I'm just going to get it. We think that what we're doing is reaching unchurched people, and I would really encourage you, this is what we're going to do. I want you to lift your hand up if you know one person that doesn't go to church, just one. It's a good, goodly amount, almost 100% of the hands in the air, Okay. Keep your hand up, keep your hand up, keep your hand up. Now, I want you to keep your hand up if a person that you know of, that you're thinking of right now, tried to attend a church and never went back. Keep your hand up. Still a lot of hands. I'm going to ask you a really hard question. Are you ready for this one? Keep your hands up. It's all right. It's, I, know it's, I know it's the morning, and I know it's like, oh, man, my arm. Uh, listen, okay. How many people, this is the hard question, how many people tried to attend your church and then never came back? I know that one hurts. I know that one's hard, okay? I know that one's hard. I know you don't want to admit it because your pastor's probably sitting in the back of the room, okay? You're like, oh, yeah, man, that's me. <laughs> All of us are like, yay. You can still see my hand, but I don't want those guys. <laughs> okay, put your hands down. All right, here you go. Questions get harder. 
I know, man. Come on, dude. It's morning service. Hard questions. How many of you know at least one homosexual? I told you these are going to be hard questions. I told you. Now we're going to ask the same series of questions. How many homosexuals do you know of that tried to attend church, felt unloved, and left? Okay, I know these are hard questions. How many, maybe, maybe, maybe less, I don't know, how many of those homosexuals tried to attend your church and then never came back? We have these types of discussions all the time in Greentown. I want to know where in the world in the Bible it tells me that service has to be Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. It doesn't say that anywhere. Why in the world have we only made our church about one meeting that we have a week? It says in Acts chapter 2 that they met daily, they ate together, they prayed together, they gave themselves the apostles' teachings, and the church was being added to daily. Not monthly or quarterly or annually, but daily. The church was being added to. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. As long as you're still saying amen, I know that I'm not out on too thin of ice. Okay. We're getting real at church camp. 40% of my community don't go to church. We were just talking about one of our core groups. Joe and I lead a core group together. And... um, we were sharing some stories about some people that we know, and I'm, I'm going to use Madeline's story because I can, and because she won't mind. She already gave me creative liberty with all of her stories today, but, well, one. I'm going to use this one anyway. Okay, here we go. Um, so we were having a discussion, and she says, you know, I know a, uh, a friend that I have in school who's gay, and his grandpa, right? Okay. His grandpa is in leadership. He's a pastor. Was he a pastor or is a pastor? Is a pastor. And had no clue what to do with this, and so he disowned the kid all through high school. Didn't talk to him. Went to his graduation open house, handed him a Bible, and said, I'm praying for you, and walked away. I'm going to tell you one thing right now. If you are evangelizing to people like that, stop it. You're not helping anything. You're the problem and not the solution. I could hand someone a dang history book, walk away and say, learn about the history of the nation because we're independent and you should learn how. That happened. And then walk away. They're not just going to crack open the history book because they're like, whoa, I need to know. 1776, why do we all eat meat and shoot stuff off and blow things up on the 4th of July? I never knew why, so... No, I gotta know. Y'all aren't excited about opening up your history books. Just stop. Stop. If you even say that you are, don't. Just quit it. You know that you're not. So this is what we do. We say, all right, come on, I know you're struggling with something. Here's a history book. You take this, crack it open, and figure out why you're free. I'll be over here in my club when you feel so inclined to come. I'm sorry, that's, that's stupid. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. 
if you think about yourself, do me a favor and put yourself in that person's shoes and think how you would feel. Here, this is the way, the truth, and the life. And instead of actually being the way, the truth, and the life to somebody, we just hand them a book that talks about it, and hopefully they catch it like the flu. It's just stupid. It's just stupid. And we used to, that's what we used to do, it was also stupid, is hand people tracks and tapes. You don't even know what a cassette tape is. Some of you, a cassette, I've heard of those things. Saw them in a museum one time. Uh, <laughs> and not too long after that, there's CDs, and we still only, we don't even use those anymore. We've got Spotify and stuff, so you don't even need that, so... Anyway, so we used to hand people tracks and cassettes, and we would do that. We'd just walk around the streets and hand people stuff, little, little tracks that had, like, the Roman road on it. Some of you don't even know what that is either, you know? It gives them the whole step-by-step process and how they're supposed to get saved and how important it is to go to church. And then we go, here you go, man. And then we just kind of let the track and the tape kind of just do its thing, and then we go back to our club. The reason that we have seen an 8% decline in Christianity over the past seven years is because we do evangelism like that, and that's nonsense. That's nonsense. The mission statement of my church is learn it, live it, pass it on. It's real simple. Our vision statement is longer, but the mission statement is how we do our vision, and we learn in church, we live what we learn, and then we pass on what we're living if you can't pass, you can't pass on what you've just once heard. Because the way it'll come across is, you should come to my church because my pastor preaches nicely. Like, oh, hey. <laughs> the light agrees. <laughs> Preach it, light. <laughs> so, you should come to my church because... Pastor Keith prayed for me one time, and I got a car. I'm not saying that's not a good open door, but if that's all that we're sharing with people is that you should come to my church because our, our amazing sugar daddy in the sky gives us stuff, and you should come because he's really cool like that, all you're doing is just reciprocating what you've heard somebody else say, but you're not really living that yourself. So you're not effectively able to pass that on to anybody because you're not living it. You're just enjoying what your pastor has learned and what he's living. Okay? Okay. So a lot of us are stuck in the learning phase, and that's all we do in our clubs called church. We just learn. We just listen to somebody talk, and we just learn. We go to youth group, and we learn. We sit in camp, and we learn. But if you don't transition from learning to living, then you'll never really be able to pass it on. And then we will continue to see a decline in church attendance over the next several decades because we're not really living what we're learning. The numbers are even more staggering of people that are in your youth group. I can think of people that were in youth group when I was in youth group, and they're not even serving Jesus anymore. The one person that I was thinking about in my life that I know that's homosexual used to go to my youth group. He was a great friend of mine. Still is. What happened? I mean, he heard the same thing I did. 
He was listening to the same things that I was listening to. Right? Didn't transition. We didn't go from learning to living and then living to passing it to other people. You're not really an effective Christian until you go through that cycle. Learning, living, and passing it on. Learning and living and passing it on. The way that you will maintain the fire that you receive at camp and the anointing and the things that you get at camp is you will learn what you're hearing and then you will live what you've heard and then you'll start passing on what you've heard to other people because it's a part of you, not just a part of somebody's teaching. I hope I'm helping somebody because I'm at least helping me. You've heard pastors say that a lot. I'm helping myself. I would hope I'm, help, I'm, hope I'm helping you because I could help myself at home. So <laughs> I actually slept pretty decent in the dorm last night, which I'm a little bit surprised, honestly. I was not expecting as good a night of sleep as I actually got. So thank you, Jesus. And my dorm leaders, too, were like, hey, this is Pastor Drew. He's preaching in the morning. Shut up. So that helped. That helped. There's my man. Come on. Help me out. I appreciate that. Um, research does not suggest that we live in a post-Christian nation. But what it does suggest is that we live in a post-church nation. And those are two separate things. They're two separate things. People still are hungry for the message of Christianity. But they're tired of church. And the reason they're tired of church but not the message is because church is stagnant and church is not reaching people with the actual message of Christ. We're reaching people with our methods. We're not reaching people with the message. So we need to stop reaching people with our method and reach people with the message. The reason that we focus so much on skewed moral values or religious indifference is because we're not addressing the real issue and that's us. We're the issue. It's easier to point to, well, you see how the world is. I mean, do you see, have, you, have you watched the news? Do you know like anything that's going on? Man, can't you see the world just in absolute chaos? And there's all the, all the people that are like, oh, man, the end is coming. I know it's coming. Every, they were saying that back in Acts, guys. They were saying that back in the book of Acts. Like the end is near. Nero was tying Christians to stakes, covering them in oil and burning them outside the cathedral to light it up, the Colosseum. They were going through a little bit heavier persecution than somebody from the LGBT not liking you very much. <laughs> Lit on fire, used as human torch. Somebody not liking me. In the moment, it feels like heavy persecution, but guys, we're not being persecuted. It's not even persecution. It's not even the definition. Somebody doesn't like me. I go to church, and they don't like me because I go to church. Come on, stop. Come on. Grow up. Pull up your pants. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Stop crying. You look ridiculous. All right? You look ridiculous. So... <laughs> The reason that we focus on all these other things is because we don't really want to deal with the issue. Luke chapter 5, 36 through 38, it says, And he was also telling them a parable, No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, otherwise he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. Verse 38 says, But new wine... 
must be put into fresh wineskins. This parable is being shared because the religious leaders of the day had a problem with Jesus reaching sinners. The reason this happened is because Jesus had just inducted this new guy into his disciple crew called James. James was a tax collector. Come on now. And the religious leaders had a problem with him asking a tax collector to be a part of his team. And the reason they had a problem with that is because he didn't ask them. If you're going to ask anybody, why didn't you ask me? I'm... I am the leading religious voice for this nation. Why wouldn't you ask me to be on your team? So jealousy drove them to do a lot of really stupid stuff, like try to kill him multiple times and then actually kill him later. And it led them to think a lot of really stupid stuff, like Jesus is here for us instead of Jesus is here to save sinners, which is all of us. He's here to liberate Israel. He's here to liberate me. He's here to put me on a pedestal. He's here to make everything that I've said. He's here to give it all validity so that everyone will look at me and say, Oh, I told you my Pharisee brother was right. I told you. And Jesus said so. So it's been confirmed. Multiple sources. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus was actually contrary to all the Pharisees' teachings of the day, and so that's why they hated him so much. The reason they hated him so much is because he was jacking with their job security. He was empowering people and saying, hey, I'm going to give you the way, the truth, and the life, and you won't need to go to these people for all your answers all the time. You'll have the answer on the inside of you via the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to empower you and give you the ability to lay hands upon the sick and see him recover. I'm going to do this in your life and it's expedient for you that I go away because these works and greater works will you do also because I go to the Father. You remember these scriptures, right? I'm talking to church kids, aren't I? For the most part. Okay, all right. Just checking. <laughs> the reason that Jesus was so hated by these people is because they didn't, they didn't like his measuring stick. Their measuring stick... This is what is happening in this parable or in, this, in these verses. They have a problem with Jesus' disciples compared to John's disciples. John's disciples fast more than Jesus' disciples. That's the parable. That's the reason the parable's here. That's the story. That's the backstory. It doesn't sound quite as cool, does it, right? No, they're just, they're just holding up a measuring stick. John's disciples fast more than your disciples... So your disciples can't possibly be nearly as holy as John's disciples. Because they're not fasting as much. How do you address that, Jesus? Drop the mic. Come on, bring it. Go right now. And they, for some reason, they kept trying to trap that dude. And he never got trapped. And they just thought, we'll just get, we'll go at him with this. We're going to get him with this one. Really? He, he always bombs you, man. He destroys you every single time with all of your ridiculous religious theology that isn't even real. It's not even backed up by anything. So what they do is they hold up this measuring stick, which is exactly what we do in the church. And we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and we go, man, those C's. They got some problems. Man, they're sad, you see. You remember those songs you used to sing in Sunday school? That's bad. I'm sorry. 
They got issues. They're always attacking Jesus, and they're always holding up all their religious theology and all their stuff, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can get to the Father except by him. And we get all pumped up about that stuff, but we don't realize that all of us have a little bit of inner Pharisee. All of us have a little bit of Pharisee and Sadducee that needs to go away immediately. Because what we will do is this. I'm going to use Weston. Give Weston a hand. That's my, that's my dude. So what we will do is this. Weston is a person that just started coming to church, okay? He doesn't know Daniel's lion's Daniel's lion's den from a hole in the ground, right? He doesn't know what that means, no clue. Uh, David and who? Uh, What happened when? Jesus and I don't even know, something. I mean, he just started coming to church. So what we do is this. And this is so ridiculous, and stop it immediately. you got to break this stick. As we go, pastor comes into the scenario. Let, let's, let, what, let's let Bryce play pastor. Come on. There's, there's my other brother, Bryce, who looks nothing like the rest of us. I literally don't know how that happened. I have my speculations. But I'm just, kidding. just kidding. That's a joke. That was a joke. That's a joke. Just kidding. Well, you heard the news at youth camp. Um, <laughs> so Bryce will play pastor, and what he'll do is he'll see some gifts, talent, because that's what a pastor does. They see gifts, talents, and abilities and things in you that you don't see in yourself. Okay? So they'll look at this person here and say, man, they're super creative. I need them to be a part of a creative team that I have. And he'll grab onto this person, a good pastor will anyway, he'll grab onto this person and say, hey, I need you to be a part of this team because you're going to help our church be a little bit better. Now, I'm going to represent the average church person. I'm sitting over here on the corner of my little something I'm doing. I don't even know what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm watching all of this happen with all my other church club members. He just started coming to the church like five minutes ago, and pastor's going to put him on that creative team. Man, that's garbage. I've been here for years, man. I've followed all the protocol. I have been here and dressed the part and talked the part and acted the part. I lift my hands so high when I worship. I lift them so high, my shoulders hurt. That's how high I lift my hands. And I can't even get them that high, so I stand up on my tiptoes trying to get to Jesus. That's what I do. I fast all the time, I pray all the time, I'm confessing every single day, and who's this joker? He just started coming to church five seconds ago, and he's part of my creative team? I wanted to be a part of that team. Well, your attitude sucks. You're never going to be part of any team at all if you keep having that attitude. Sitting over here on my blessed assurance going, hey... Come on, man. This is, what is this? And instead of me doing this, I will maintain this stupid posture, sitting here, looking at that, wishing that I was that, wishing that I had that, being mad at him because he has that. Instead of going, hey, man, my name is Drew. I'm really happy that you're a part of this church. 
and there's anything that I can help you do, you let me know. Pastor, come on. We, gonna, we got this team going, and, and I want to do everything that I can to make sure this team grows. And I want to do everything I can to make sure this church grows. Everything I can. So if there's anything, Pastor, that you need, you please let me know. <laughs> you both better sit down before this gets out of hand. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> my church is structured as thus. This is how we do things at my church. This may not be how you do things at your church, and it's okay. You guys do church the way you do church. This is just the way we do church. I have a guy, his name's Johnny. Um, came from a church. I'm realizing more and more all the time, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Just because some building has the word church on the door doesn't mean that they're anything like that. It does not mean that they're a church just because they have a 501c3 tax exemption. Like... That doesn't mean nothing. There are secular organizations doing more for people than the church. Where they just, You just put the word church after your name. That doesn't mean anything. Just saying. All right, that was extra. You didn't have to pay extra for that. Um, so what we do is... Oh, oh, Johnny, that's what I was talking about. So Johnny comes to my comes with my church, they came from a church where the pastor was in fidelity with his secretary. Um, yeah, cheated on his spouse, really terrible situation. And whether you like it or not, that's happening all the time. It happens all the time. And so they're leaving that church and transitioning out of that to get to another church. And he calls me and he says, hey, we're going to be at your church on Easter Sunday. And I said, awesome, man. And I hung up the phone. And then the Lord prompted on my heart, hey, Blake's going to be out of town. He usually plays bass for us. I'm going to see if, I know that Johnny can just slay it on the bass guitar. He's such a good bass player. So I'm going to ask him to play bass for us on Easter Sunday. That is not a traditional church model. You don't just let anybody on your platform. You don't know where that person came from. I didn't, listen, I didn't let him lead the congregation in worship. I let him stand in the corner with a bass guitar. Because he can play really good bass guitar. And I'm going to tell you something right now. The dude's anointed to play bass guitar. He was in my church. Well, actually, he'd never even actually been to my church. And I already put him on a helps team. Let's have a talk. That's it. We, we don't have a whole bunch of models. I do things in my church to make sure that my people stay protected. I don't let anybody serve in my children's ministry. I don't let anybody serve in my youth ministries. Those are the most vulnerable parts of your ministry um, with the most vulnerable people in them. So I always make sure that we do everything that we can to make sure that structurally we take care of those people. But come on, dude, play some bass guitar. And I don't even have to send him the sheet music. That's just how he plays. He's just like, I'm just going to play by ear and just boom, 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 boom. And it's just like, I'm just going to stand over here and do my thing for Jesus. I, and uh, I can't get rid of the dude now. I just can't get rid of him. I, I, he keeps asking for more stuff to do. And I'm like, 
I feel like you're already doing way more than any new person should be required to do in a church in which they just started attending. And he's asking for more stuff. And if I would follow a traditional model, I wouldn't have people like Johnny in my church. You need to be in church for a year, serving in some type of lesser ministry before we put you on the platform. I didn't say preaching the gospel or leading people in worship. But up on the platform, playing guitar or doing some type of secondary ministry, you can't be doing any of that stuff until you've been in a church for some finite, weird number that we all come up with. I, I don't know. The reason that your friends don't come to church is because you haven't made a place for them at your church. You haven't made a place for them. So why in the world would they show up if there's no place for them? The reason we're not reaching young people, the reason that millennials are turning away from the church in ridiculous numbers is because we're not making any room for them. This parable is being shared with those things in mind, and I, I want to ask you a question. What man-made obstacles do we have in our church that are keeping people from coming to church? I didn't say God-made. I said man-made. Because there's a lot of things in your church, if you really want to get serious about it and start having some real discussion that challenges you and makes you think a little bit outside the box, which is what all your generation is so ridiculously good at. You guys are so creative. It's ridiculous how creative you are. I have so many young people on my teams because you guys are so smart. You have some of the coolest, most creative ideas. And I could have never in a million years sat in my office and come up with that. I, no way. All the anointing in the world wouldn't have got me that idea. And you just pulled it out of nowhere. And it's just like, yes, that's awesome. Why didn't I think of that like seven years ago? That's a genius idea. Let's do that. Then we make room for millennials. And we make room for young families. Our youth, or our children's ministry went from four. I'm not joking, am I? Four kids. Four kids in our kids' ministry. Three of them were family. My son, his daughter, and, and my other son. No, not born yet. So two were family. So half of our children's ministry was made up of our family that doesn't have a choice. They come. If they don't, we drag them out the house, you know? So that's pretty sad. So my wife and I started praying, and we said, you know what? I don't want my kid to grow up in a church that doesn't have a strong children's department. If I were going to a church anywhere else that I wasn't the pastor of, what would I want? What would make me feel comfortable as a 31-year-old with two young kids? Not how we've done things in our church for a decade. That's not what I asked. What would make me feel like I'm comfortable leaving my children if they're going to learn something about Jesus? That's what would I want if I wasn't the pastor. Would I come to my church? I asked myself a really, really hard question. You ready for another hard question? You guys are doing good this morning. Is everybody okay? Yeah. I asked myself the question for six years. I've been pastor there now for seven. I feel like we just started doing ministry, actually. Um, six years, I asked this question. If... I were not the pastor here, would I go to church here? As a, as a, at the time, like 28, 29, 30-year-old, would I go to church here? And I had 
to swallow hard with the answer every single time being, no, I don't think I would. I don't think I would. And I would sit in my office sometimes, guys, and I'd actually cry about my own answer to my own question. That hurts. So why don't we just start changing some stuff to be a church that people want to come to? Why not? What on earth do we have to lose? And so we decided that we were just going to look at the whole entire thing and lay it all on the table and say, okay, what's God made and has to stay and what's man made and has to go? What are some things that I've just heard people preach? I'm going to get real, okay? That have no practical application whatsoever. That are really just grabbing for scriptures just to prove a point anyway. That are just man-made things. That are keeping my friends that need to be in church, out of church. What about my homosexual friend? The place he needs to be is in church. Right? Why would I push him out the door so that we can maintain our club? I'm not doing that. That's what Jesus was doing. He was reaching out to sinners and religious people had a problem with it. Not the world, the religious people had a problem with it. So we got to take that measuring stick, guys, that we use in our churches and break that sucker, man. Over your knee, over your neighbor's head, something. Break that stick immediately because it's not helping anybody. It's only hurting people and it's keeping your friends from coming to church. People that you care about. Sorry, man, the anointing is just real. I hope I'm helping somebody. This parable talks about the new and the old. I'm going to kind of wrap up with this here, okay? The new and the old. The problem is, since the church's infancy, is that we marry our methods to our message. We marry our methods to our message, and they're not always the same. The message never changes because the word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's always the same. Jesus was the same millennia ago, and he'll be the same millennia after us. He's always the same. Always. And we can never change, dilute, take away from the message of hope, the message of repentance, and the message of of, of blessed assurance that we do have in Christ alone. We can't take away from that message or change it to make more people happy. If you start messing with the message and you've done started jacking around with the foundation of everything that we do, and your house is going to crumble, okay? So you can't mess with the foundation. That's what you build on. But the sticks and the roof and the windows and the doors and all the furnishings inside, those are methods, guys. They're methods. And if you don't like what's being built, change it. I don't mess with the foundation because that's what I'm building on. But everything I build on top of that, that's up to me. That's up to me. The stuff that I like inside that house may not be the same type of stuff you like inside your house. Because I like cool, eclectic, retro-style furniture. I love mid-century modern things. You might be like, yeah, that's just not cool. Um, This looks old and lame, you know? I like... I like really rough lines, too, like industrial-style stuff and just really 
masculine things. My wife isn't into that like masculine design style. So everything that I do, I'm like, oh, let's do this and let's make that line. And let's go, oh, everything's jagged and rough and, you know, wood and metal and yeah. And she's like, yeah, it looks like a man cave. It's just too, it's not welcoming and inviting. It's just rough and rugged and edgy, you know. And I'm like, okay, so we rearrange it, fix it may not even be your style at all, and that's okay, because church isn't really about style, it's about the foundation, but when we start marrying our styles and our methods to the foundation itself, and when somebody wants to come in and change a window, we spaz, when somebody wants to come in and take one of the pictures off the wall and replace it with something that's a little bit more modern, and we go, ah! my grandma put that picture up. And my great-grandma gave it to her, okay? Don't mess with that. That's sacred. <laughs> it's just a picture. Relax. And I'm going to tell you something. If we all, and I, I pray that every single one of you, 100% of this room, you'll continue to stay active in your church, that you'll raise your family in church, that church will be a huge part of your community forever and ever in your life. And that you'll find your definition and your identity in your church culture and in your community. That's what I pray for every single one of you. But if you stick around long enough, the next generation is going to come after you and want to change the photo or the picture on the wall. And you can't freak out. So don't look at all of us that are a little older than you and be upset with us when we freak out a little bit. Okay, 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 okay. It's all right. 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 Still preaching Jesus, right? Okay, good. <laughs> give us some grace. You're going to have to give somebody else some grace later, okay? So your church may not be everything that you want it to be, but how about you operate in some grace with your man and woman of God that's working really, really hard to make sure that your church is relevant, to make sure that it's reaching people your age. Amen? So, I'm going to wrap up. Here you go. There's new cloth and old cloth mentioned in this verse. The new cloth is, uh, uh, I think about it like this. You wouldn't take your new dress, your new suit, and use it to patch up your work jeans. Right? Because one is a little bit more important than the other. And it's used for different things. Right? So, I wouldn't take a new piece of cloth and stick it on an old garment. Because that just doesn't make any sense. It would really ruin both. So now you don't have a nice suit because it's got a hole in it. And now your work jeans look ridiculous because you just patched them up with a suit. That's just dumb. Like, why would you do that? So why in the world do we patch up or try to fix our methods or try to fix the message with our methods? We're trying to marry something new to something old or something old to something new, and it just doesn't work that way. We can't take our methods and try to make them the message. They're not. The message is the same. The methods will change. Amen? Then he uses something else, like old wine and new wine. Most wine is drinkable. Most of the wine that's drank in the country and in the world is new wine. It's not old. The common misconception is that every good wine is an old wine. As a matter of fact, it's not the case. Most drinkable is when it's newer, not older. There are a few exceptions to this rule. 
Like back in 2010, two bottles of 1869 something, and I don't know anything about it, but $230,000 a piece those bottles sold for. And that's the most expensive bottle of wine that's ever been purchased that anybody knows of. $230,000 at auction a piece for an 1869 bottle of wine. Now, I guarantee you this, that the person that bought a $230,000 bottle of wine is not buying it to drink it. Right? They're buying it to put it in their cellar so that when people come over to their house, they can say, guess what I have? I have an 1869 bottle of whatever in my basement. You should come look at it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. As a matter of fact, you're breathing too heavy on it. Back up a little. All right, there it is. You see the label from here? See, 1869. No, you can't see it in binoculars. Here you go. There it is. All right, now let's go back upstairs. So we've done disturbed it too much. That's what people buy those types of expensive bottles for. They're not for drinking. They're not for sharing. They're for collecting. Our churches have become museums and monuments of collections. And they're not for drinking. They're not for sharing. They're not for giving away. They're not for having a party and sharing it with your friends. They're for collecting. So when people show up, we can say, look what I have. So that when people come to the house, we can say, I have a bottle of... When people come over to the house, we can say, look what we've built. Let me share a whole bunch of testimonies about how brother, sister, so-and-so got this or received that or how this happened in their life, but we never really teach them how they can receive it in their own. (laughs) the body of Christ is not for collecting the church is not a museum or a monument it is actually something to be drank and enjoyed by all and if all we're doing is filling our churches up with a whole bunch of collected nonsense then don't be surprised when nobody shows up to the house because not everybody's impressed by your 1869 bottle of whatever they're hungry for something they can actually drink we just sang a song about the well they're hungry for a place that they can come and drink from that well that never runs dry when Jesus told that woman at that well you'll be able to drink from my eternal well and it will never ever ever run dry that sounds drinkable to me doesn't it to you sounds drinkable Sounds like you can drink as much as you want, and you don't ever have to worry about it going away. A bottle of 1869, whatever, they get a wild hair one day, and they decide we're going to pop that thing open and pour some glasses. That bottle's gone. You drank it. So now you just got a bottle with nothing in it that has a label that says 1869 on it. How many churches have we, have we done this? We've handed out all of our collected stuff. Here you go, here you go, here you go. And we started drinking from it, and now we're completely empty. And we have nothing else to give away. Because we're not handing out an eternal well of anything. We're handing out pieces and methods that will change, that are not endless. That will run dry. Can I say this to you? Stop collecting and start sharing. Stop collecting and start sharing. 
Jesus is not an antique. Church is not an antique. Your friends think that church is an antique. Your friends think that Jesus is an antique, that he's not relevant, that he's not important, that church isn't important, that it's not relevant. You need to show them something different. So stop showing them collections and show them something that's worth sharing. I'm going to say that there are very few people that can afford a $230,000 bottle of wine. Few people in the world that would be willing to shell out that kind of cash for a bottle of grape juice. So why are we doing that in church? There are very few people that can afford all your methods. There are very few people that can sort through and navigate through all of our protocols and statutes and standards and theology to get to the real message of the cross. There's few people that will do that. And that's why your church only has 30 people in it. I can't, I'm just getting real. I live in a city with 2,500 people in it. 2,500. My church has 80 people in it. By the standards, I don't know what that is, percentage. So Wes could probably figure, he's going to figure it out right now. This is always what he does when I preach. He always figures out all the stuff that I say, and then he gives me a number. That's just how he rolls, man. I love that kid. <laughs> but I set some goals at the beginning of the year. Uh, I wasn't being specific enough when I was praying, and I wasn't being specific about what I wanted. I said to God stupid, ambiguous things like, we want the church to grow. What's that mean? What's that even mean? What's that mean to your church? What's that mean in your demographic? What's that mean in the people that you're trying to reach? What, what demographic are you trying to reach? Who are you targeting? You're not being specific enough. So we just throw out this big blanket statement and we just expect, this is our growth strategies in churches. This is what we do. We just wait for people to know that we're right so they'll start coming. If we just preach the rightness enough, then everybody will know that we're right and they'll start coming. And there's wonderful churches that are closing their doors because that's their growth strategy. This is how we're going to grow the church. We're just going to keep preaching Jesus. And people will eventually get the word and come find us. How's that working out? I told you it was going to get real at the end. There's two options in this message. We're either going to have reformation so that we can have revival or you're never going to ask me back. One of the two. One of the two things. (laughs) So, in my demographic, there's 40% of people. What is it? 3% are in our church. So 3% of our community are in our church. And that's not big enough. It's not big enough. Um, So my goal at the beginning of the year is to be more specific. That I wanted to see... 20 or more salvations in my church, 10 or more water baptisms in my church, and I wanted to see 80 people in regular attendance every Sunday. Not 80 people that claim to be members of my church that never show up, 80 people in regular attendance. So I set those goals, and I send them out to my staff and my leadership, and we're all praying over those things, and I kid you not, am I joking? First part of the year, first quarter, we hit... We're halfway at our salvations. We're more than half at water baptisms. And we're very, very close to our 80 regular attenders. 
first quarter. Because God just said, be specific. Why in the world are you asking me ambiguous things? What's your strategy, dude? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, you're my strategy. (laughs) Send people or something. Terrible leadership. No, no, no inspiration to anybody in the congregation. Pastor, what's your vision? What's the direction for the church moving forward? Uh, Jesus. He's the direction. And it sounds good because it's Jesus, but it's not really effective. So I said, this is what we're going to do, guys. This year we're going to see 80 regular attenders. We're going to see 20 salvations, and we're going to see at least 10 water baptisms in our church this year. This is what we're going to see. And I need you to be praying about this stuff. We're going to grow in these arenas, and this is how we're going to do it so that we can get there. So instead of just going, okay, guys, let's hit our prayer closet. Can I say something to you? Charismatic believers, you Holy Ghost-filled people, prayer is used as an excuse so many times for inactivity. I'm a prayer warrior. The Bible says nothing about prayer warriors. It's not in the Scripture. Go to your Google device and type in prayer warrior scripture and nothing will come up. There's no such thing in the Bible. There are people called to pray, but we're all called to pray. So, and I do have people in my church to intercede and pray and they they get into some depths of prayer that I know that I can give them certain things to be praying about. I have that, but I never ever let that group be the little closet people that never come out in the light of day. So all your prayer closet people are like coming out in the sunlight, like, oh, oh, I've been in his presence for so long. I haven't seen the light of day in a long time. And they're all pale. Oh, my eyes have to adjust to the world around me now. They've been closed for so long in prayer. Their legs don't work because they've been on their knees for so long. Oh, finally come out of my closet. (laughs) Prayer is not an excuse for inactivity. Pray and then do something. Go reach your community. Go do something for Jesus in your community. Amen. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up real quick. Guys, I love you so much. Do you still love me? Okay. All right. That's good. I'm glad, I'm glad my youth group was passing out rocks when y'all came in, so I'm glad you guys didn't throw those at me during the 